Well, brethren, at sundown, the days of unleavened bread will conclude. This last day will officially end as the sun goes down, of course. God starts and begins his days at sundown. And uh, it's important for us to understand and, and reflect upon the fact that it has been well expounded, lo, these many years in God's church, that the days of unleavened bread certainly do represent us getting the leaven out of our, out of our lives, out of our domiciles, out of our homes. And that lesson, of course, is for us to learn the, the real meaning of it is that this is where we live, right here, you know. Our homes provide shelter for us, but your life is here. Your cognizance is here. Your awareness is here. And, and this is where the leaven is that can make it a little too crowded for the Lord Jesus Christ to, to stay in there. So we need to get the leaven out to make room for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a very simple but effective analogy and metaphor, of course. But when these days end, you know, how many of us are looking forward to a Big Mac or, you know, <laughs> just a piece of bread, a piece of toast, right? You know, we miss those things. And there's nothing wrong with that. We are creatures of habit. And we have our own likes and dislikes in terms of taste. But uh, we understand, of course, the representation there. And hopefully, when the days of unleavened bread end, tonight at sundown, we won't just simply all of a sudden completely eradicate every vestige of what it means from our life. We won't forget about it. Well, that's done now. Let's just, just look ahead to the next holy day, right? Yeah. Because it's all connected, you see. The days of unleavened bread are very much integral to the next holy day, which, of course, is Pentecost, the Feast of First Fruits. And the, the fact is, our, the necessity for us to get the leaven out is an ongoing process. And the best day you ever have as a Christian, you're still going to have some residual leaven, uh, leaven to, to, to get rid of. And, and so it's an ongoing process. I remember years ago hearing uh, not, not just a few elders say, when you come up from the waters of baptism, it's a done deal, you're completely converted. No, you're not. And no one ever has been. The fact is, it's an ongoing process. Certainly that process is, is underway by the time someone is repentant and desirous of baptism, understanding what it means, the contrition is there, and you want to be forgiven, you want the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit, that's all part of the process. But conversion is an ongoing, lifelong process of getting the leaven out, because we live in a leaven-filled world. It's all around us, and it is analogous, of course, of the ponarius pneuma. Did George look up when I said that? My, my good friend George, who speaks fluent Greek. And I, I can't help it, George. Every time I try to expound one of these Greek words, I, I look at you. Yeah. Ponerius pneuma. Did I say it right? Close enough. Close enough. All right. <laughs> the important thing is to understand what it means. It is evil spirit. Evil spirit. And it's all around us. And it is a very good analogy, the, the, the concept of leaven. There are trillions of them 
in the very air that we breathe. They occupy every cubic meter of air on this planet. They are yeast spores, and you can't really ever get rid of what you can't see. But they're there, you know, we're surrounded by it, we breathe it in. And the analogy is perfect, of course, because we're surrounded by an unseen Ponerios Numa kingdom that is the kingdom of Satan the devil, you know, the very kingdom that he offered to the Lord Jesus, you know, when he took him up there on the, on the mountain, he said, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world, you know, well, that included his kingdom. And, and so we must guard against that, of course. The influence is all around us, and we absorb it daily in various ways. And guarding against it, of course, is part of our struggle. We're not inoculated just because we have now completed the days of unleavened bread. Theoretically, we are now unleavened. But we're not inoculated from future leavening. And that's, that's the point I want to make, of course. Now, I want to draw your attention to the fact of the timing of where we are. In the scenario of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, he has now been resurrected, you know, three days and three nights. And just let me mention, it wasn't Friday afternoon till sunrise on Sunday morning, right? Yesterday, all over the world, millions of people gathered for Easter sunrise services, you know. Their sincerity notwithstanding, that has nothing whatsoever remotely connected to Scripture. It wasn't on Easter Sunday that it happened, of course. We can prove definitively empirical evidence from God's Word when it happened, when the crucifixion happened, when the resurrection happened. And clearly it was on the Wednesday, and clearly it was on the Sabbath, late in the day on the Sabbath, when the Lord Jesus Christ was resurrected. And we know what happened after his resurrection. And I want to go through that scenario because it is pertinent to the first fruits. But before I do that, I want to take us back to Leviticus chapter 23. Turn with me in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 23. Because I believe that it's incumbent upon us to validate what we're doing and why we're here because we're told to proclaim it in its season. The implication being proclaim the reason for it. It is a commanded assembly. And it is a very peculiar thing that we're doing here in the eyes of the world, to say the least. What in the world are Christian people doing gathered together on a Monday keeping something called the last day of unleavened bread. In the eyes of the professing Christian world, and those who aren't Christian for that matter, this is a very peculiar thing. In Leviticus chapter 23, let me break into the text at verse 6. On the 15th day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread unto the eternal. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. In the first day you shall have an holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein, but you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the eternal seven days. In the seventh day is an holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein. We're in that seventh day. But I wanted to draw your attention to the fact that it says an offering made by fire is obligatory for seven days. And yet, 
We're not doing that. Why is it that we're not doing that? I just wonder how many of you have ever been questioned about things like that, you know? And I was recently questioned about that very thing, you know? Well, you're not doing all of it. You're only doing part of it. No, we are indeed doing all of it. The fact is, Jesus Christ now satisfies all obligatory things attached to the concept of sacrifice and worship. It's all through the Lord Jesus Christ now. He is the red heifer. He is the brazen laver. He is the lamb. He is everything. And it's all fulfilled through the Lord Jesus Christ. So all of these comments that we have in the Torah in regards to worship and sacrifice, everything that the Levitical priesthood would have been involved in is now filled full in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the true meaning and the true understanding of, John, or of Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17, where the Lord said, don't think that I came to destroy the Torah. And that is the word that he used, translated to law in the King James Bible, but his audience understood, and of a necessity he would have had to have said the Torah. They wouldn't have understood anything else. Don't think that I've come to destroy the Torah. I came to fulfill it, to fill it full. I came to give you my perspective on it, to, to educate you about it. You can now understand it through the prism that I provide. By virtue of the understanding that I associate with it, we can know those things. So he satisfies all of these obligatory offerings and, and uh, uh, worships, that is, in terms of uh, sacrifice, animal sacrifice, all through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, turn back over to Exodus chapter 12, because I've already referenced the fact that we understand and have long understood in God's church that leaven is associated with sin, and Paul makes that association. That's where we get it. We get it from Paul's preaching to the Corinthian church, which I will turn to directly. But just let me say this. Paul is the one who explains a great deal of... Our, our doxology is pretty much because of what Paul teaches us. The way that we do things. Not just what we believe, but even how we do it. It's because of Paul more than anyone else. Paul had a great deal of trouble with the Corinthian church, which was possibly the largest church, Corinth being a very... Uh, quite a metropolis in those days. And... It was probably either Ephesus or Corinth that was the, the largest church, and many, many hundreds of uh, Christians there, and, but he had a lot of problems there, and that's why he had to write two books, two letters to the Corinthian church. They, they needed a lot of attention. Uh, it's been suggested there probably or might have been a, another letter that we no longer have, but Paul's effort to correct the Corinthian church, he even tells us how to keep Passover correctly, how to take the wine and the bread correctly, because he was, he was actually taking the Corinthian church to task because they weren't doing it right. So we learn a lot of things through, through the Apostle Paul dealing with the Corinthian church. And uh, we will turn over to those uh, scriptures directly. But the primary reason listed in God's Word, in fact, the only reason listed in God's Word as to why we keep the days of unleavened bread can be found here. That it, this is the specific statement in regards to why it is obligatory upon us. And it's important 
to understand that because it connects us to the salvific efforts of Jesus Christ on each holy day and on, on each Sabbath. Let me break into the text of chapter 12 at verse 14. This day shall be unto you a memorial. You shall keep it a feast of the eternal throughout your generations. You shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Seven days shall you eat unleavened bread. Even the first day you shall put away leaven out of your houses. For whosoever eateth leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that soul shall be cut off from Israel. That stern warning is repeated a number of times. It's very clear that, that God is communicating something to us about the importance of getting the leaven out, of, of having a true conversion. Verse 16. In the first day there shall be a holy convocation, and the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation to you. A convocation, by definition, is a convoked assembly, a required assembly, an ordered assembly. It's not something just left up to us in terms of how we celebrate our Christianity. It is a convoked assembly. No manner of work shall be done in them, save that which every man must eat, that only may be done of you. And you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Here's the reason. And the only reason the Scripture is given. You shall eat, you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread for, or because, in this selfsame day I have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, consequently, because I brought your armies out of the land of Egypt... Therefore, you shall observe this day in your generations by an ordinance forever. And the connection, of course, is with Jesus Christ. He has brought us out from the bondage of slavery. He has brought us out from the Egypt of this world. Satan the devil being the pharaoh of this Egypt that we're all part of. We've all been enslaved by sin. And everybody here still is enslaved in some way, to some degree with residual carnality residing in all of us, we still have things that we need to overcome. Somebody say amen. Amen. Yes. And so we're still trying to get away from Egypt. And isn't it like, isn't it very much like what they wanted to do? They always kept wanting to go back, you know. They they missed the food, you know. They they missed being in Egypt, the comfort over the homes and all those kinds of things. And God had to continually reinforce that he was freeing them from all that, trying to get all of that out, get rid of that leaven that they had acquired over 430 years. But the connection of these words, you'll find these words and this sentiment connected with the Sabbath and each of the holy days. And in fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, where we're given a reiteration of the Ten Commandments, it is so stated in such a way that we keep the Sabbath for this same reason, because of the understanding associated with it, the salvific effort of Jesus Christ. It's about our salvation. It's about Christ being the Lamb of God. It's about Jesus Christ freeing us. The stretched out arms and strong hands of the Lord Jesus Christ have brought us out from the bondage, the slavery of sin. Yes. And that's our understanding. And we're told to consider that on the Sabbath and the Holy Days. To remember that, to memorialize that, is part of keeping the Sabbath holy. If you don't have some, some cognizance of that, if you don't have some, 
awareness of that on the Sabbath and the holy days, then you haven't really properly kept the day. It is always about the salvific efforts of Jesus Christ. It is, it is the heart and core of the, of the gospel message, what Jesus Christ has done for us. He has freed us. He has brought us out. And now we must understand that and make those associations. But turn with me now, if you would, over to 1 Corinthians. In the book of 1 Corinthians. Like I said, the Corinthian church had a lot of problems. And the parallels between the Corinthian church and this United States of America, that we, we're living in Corinth right now, in many respects. Corinth was a culture saturated by uh, Ponerius Numa, in many respects. They had hundreds of years of pagan conditioning. You know, they had temples there that were devoted to various sexual deities, as it were. They had, they had temples, some of which employed more than a thousand male and female prostitutes. And they had a twisted and perverted idea about sexual expression. And in that culture, it was not, dare I use the word, it was not politically correct <laughs> to condemn someone's sexuality. It was not politically correct to be judgmental about what someone was doing to express their sexuality, as it were. Can anybody see any parallels with what's going on in our country today? Yeah. And, and so my contention that we are Corinth, or certainly we're becoming that, should resonate with all of us. Yeah. i just remind you that our own Supreme Court, not too long ago, redefined the definition of marriage, didn't they? Yeah. You know, from my perspective, that's a fist in God's face. You know, marriage being something that God has given us, literally to illustrate the relationship between God the Word and God the Father and us, and the oneness, the oneness that a couple becomes in the marriage ceremony. You know. Male and female, conjoined together, fitting together emotionally and physically designed for that purpose. And what about the fact that abortions have now exceeded 59 million and counting in this country? Another fist in God's face? Are we not pushing God away? Are we not becoming Corinth in many respects? Sexual license is the name of the day. It really is. Have you noticed some of the pictures in the catalogs for how we would dress our little girls? Yes. The, the things that we see on TV. Leaven in, leaven out. You know? What do we say about computers and how you program computers? I'm not very literate about computers, but I understand the concept. Garbage in, garbage out. You know? If it's not programmed right, if you allow bad stuff in, well, then you can expect bad results. Yeah. The things that we see, the things that we're exposed to in the news, Things that we allow ourselves to be entertained by. Uh, are we not all guilty of, of some of these things? Is there a person here who will say to me today, face to face, 
fearing that I might call you a liar face to face, that there is some area of your life, it's, it's like it's leaven that you won't, you're not going to monkey with that leaven. You're going to hang on to that leaven, you know. We know our own proclivities. In each life here, including the preacher that's preaching to you, if we will do some serious soul searching, we know that there are things that we need to get out, things that we need to change. And it was brought out on that first day sermon, how we need to intellectualize, we need to investigate, we need to think. And some of those words that that Bill put up there on, on the board about the cognitive process. God is not mocked, and we are sowing presently, and ultimately we will reap. Yes. So brethren, it's important that we really truly internalize that this concept that Paul is explaining here to the Corinthian church. He begins here, let me just pick it up at verse, uh, well let me start in verse 1. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, that there is porneo among you. That's the word that we would attach to the concept of pornography. There is pornography among you, incorrect or perverted fornication among you. And such fornication, such twisted perverse porneia, as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, the Gentiles being the ethnos, the different ethnic nations. So Paul references the fact that something was going on here in this congregation that even the other ethnic nations would have frowned upon. And you are puffed up and have not, oh, I I forgot, not named among the Gentiles, the ethnos, that one should have his father's wife. Yeah. Well, that's pretty perverse, to say the least. We don't know if it was a stepmother or if it was actually a, a real mother, just father's wife. But this individual was having porneo with his father's wife. And you are puffed up. You are prideful, in other words, and have not rather mourned that he that has done this deed might be taken away from among you. Yeah, their senses had been dulled. They had been programmed to be very non-judgmental in such matters. They didn't, they didn't see a problem, apparently. In fact, they were proud of the fact that they weren't judgmental. <laughs> they were proud of the fact that they could ex- still, still accept him in their midst. Yes. They wouldn't condemn it. For I verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that has so done this deed. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and when Paul says that, of course, he invokes the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ as an apostle. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together, and my spirit, the common spirit that we have, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such as and one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, the fleshly thing that he was doing, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now before I go on, just let me say that Paul's motivation in regards to this individual was always about saving this individual. And we could turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, which I won't do, but you see that Paul's motivation was always about godly repentance and and causing someone 
to repent and to come back, as it were. And the principle that Paul expounds in that is, is one that God teaches us from cover to cover. Return unto me and I will return unto you. But he goes on here. Your glorying is not good. And the word glorying is, in the Greek is kalkama. He smiled, but he didn't look up. And it means to boast or brag. They were proud of their great tolerance and not being judgmental. But in such a circumstance, judgment of one's behavior is absolutely necessary. That's not being judgmental, but we all judge when we see whether it's right or wrong, don't we? We can judge whether or not someone is transgressing God's law. That's not a judgment about God's relationship with them, but it certainly is a judgment required of us in regards to your conduct and mine. And he goes on, Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So that's it. If we tolerate it in others, certainly we're going to tolerate it in ourselves. And it will grow. It it, it grows exponentially. Verse 7, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you are unleavened, and becoming unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. The word purge is interesting. It is ikatherio, or something close to that. And it literally means to cleanse, to scrub, to wash, to purge. Yes, to get that out, to clean it out, to purge it out which implies, obviously, that there is something required of us. Proactive involvement on our part to become a Christian, to become a Christian that you have fantasized that you would like to be. Have we not all thought about how we would like to be in reality as to what we are? Have we not all done that? I know I have. I know the Christian I want to be and I know the one that I am. That's not to say that this one's not a Christian, (laughs) but I'd rather be this other Christian that's much better. We've all done that, haven't we? Yes? Well, God doesn't zap us. You know, he doesn't have a wand. You know, he doesn't make us that way. It's a process that we can be involved in. It is attainable. I can be what I envision myself to be in terms of my relationship with Jesus Christ. I absolutely can, and so can you. The program understands that. The program allows for that. We can actually grow in grace and knowledge. We can actually get the leaven out. We can actually be converted. There's a reciprocity involved here. We must purge it out. God won't do it for us. Now, you can be forgiven... That's a whole other matter here. I'm not talking about one's salvation. I'm talking about the fact that we can all purge it out and be better than we are. I can be a better husband. My wife's smiling. I'm sure she appreciates hearing that. I can be a better grandpa. I can be a better preacher. I'm sure you'd like for me to be. I can be a better elder in God's church. I can be a better man. We can all be better. There's leaven in me that I need to get out. 
I'm not going to stand up here and enumerate my flaws. <laughs> I wouldn't get very far, you'd tell me to sit down. <laughs> but we can be unleavened. We truly can purge it out and be unleavened. God didn't give us these, these holy days and the, and the duties associated with them, the, the kagags associated with them, that is the Hebrew word that means the ritual attached to it, the things required of us. He gave it to us because of what it can do to us. And it is the works that we are to walk in. Purge out, therefore, the old leaven. These old attitudes, the old way of thinking, because that's where it's at. That you may be a new lump, as you are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Yes, because he's been sacrificed for us, it is attainable. We can do it. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Boy, that that must be a misprint, right? Aren't we told that all of this has been done away? How many, just as a little sidebar here, how many proofs do we see in the New Testament in regards to the fact that Paul and the others, for 300 years, were keeping the Sabbath and the holy days? It's, It's not even debatable, of course. And as a matter of fact, if, if any one of us was involved in a, in a seminary study at a, at a Catholic university or a Protestant university, if you went to the Baptist seminary, you would learn those facts in a way that they wouldn't dispute. That, yeah, the church did indeed do those things. But they would all come to the conclusion to, to, to tell you that, but it's not necessary anymore. God's grace allows us to change it all or some other cockeyed nonsense like that. But the fact is, the God who does not change, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, who personifies truth, thy word is truth, Jesus Christ said. Yes. Add not to it, nor take away from it, Deuteronomy. Yeah. It's still in place here. Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is, or has been, sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. And the word feast here is heortadso, and it literally means the holy day. That's what the word means. Not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. It's got to be real. It's got to be the truth. Now, if you will, brethren, turn with me in your Bibles over to Matthew chapter 18. In Matthew chapter 18, let me take you to verse 7 to begin. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Verse 8, wherefore, or consequently, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. Well, the King James has everlasting fire. 
Aionios is the, the Greek word here, literally means age-lasting, a specific uninterrupted amount of time, not eternity. Very clear distinction. A fire that lasts for an age without being interrupted. That is, the, that is the exegesis that we can understand there. But the point is, the point that's made here, continues in verse 9. And if your eye offend thee, pluck it out, cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into Gehenna, Gehenna fire, hell fire. Well, the lesson is clear, you know, and I'm not suggesting that anybody should chop off a hand or, you know, poke out an eye, but there's a lesson here, and I've already touched on it. What is it in your life, what is the hand or the eye that's offending you and retaining leaven? In each and every case, there is something that maybe you need to give up. Is there a it might be something as innocuous, seemingly innocuous, as a program on television. You know, that might be feeding ideas and concepts into your head that given enough time will change your whole perspective about the redefinition of marriage. Any programs like that on TV? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or, or maybe there's something in your life wherein your, uh, your entertainment likes and dislikes. Uh, could any of it be a little too lustful? Could, could there be too much flesh in some of the things that you like to see? I didn't mean that personally, Dave, when I looked at you. <laughs> could there be something along the line of violence? My wife knows what I'm talking about. I'm not going to do it anymore. I've been watching these mixed martial arts fights, you know. By the time some of those fights are over, I miss being in the ring. It's pretty bloody. Is that doing me any good to watch that? I don't think so. I need to get away from that. That's some leaven that I've been hanging on to. Am I resonating with anybody? And I think that's a perfect understanding here associated with these scriptures. If there's something that offends you, get rid of it. Get rid of it. Get it out of your life. Now, I want to change gears completely, and I want to go over to John chapter 20. And I'll just reference the fact that in Leviticus chapter 23, as we read on through there, we see that we have now uh, started the count towards Pentecost, The Lord Jesus Christ was indeed resurrected, and there was a a Sabbath that we all experienced between the first day and the last day of unleavened bread. And on the Sunday after that Sabbath that you will always have between the bookshelf ends of the first day and the last day of unleavened bread, and sometimes it will even uh, coordinate with the first day perhaps, but there's always a weekly Sabbath. And the count always begins the day after that weekly Sabbath that's in there somewhere. And so now we have begun the count, the 50-day count, seven full weeks plus one day, towards Pentecost, Pentecosti. George just nodded. Pentecosti literally means counting 50 or the 50th, you know. 
the Feast of First Fruits, and that's what we're counting for. But I want to draw your attention to the fact that when the wave sheaf offering occurred, there was a reality attached to it in the life and experience of Jesus Christ and the disciples. And we read about that here in John chapter 20. And I want to take us there. And it's one of the most emotional areas of God's Word for me. And I want to, I want to share my, my picture and my emotion as we read through this. Because guess what? The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is the very point of the spear. It's the, it's the tip of the, of the sword of God's Word. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, first and foremost above all else, is a matter of faith. It didn't require any faith to believe that he was dead, but it absolutely requires faith to believe that he's alive. And that is saving faith. Yes, indeed. He's alive. Death could not hold him. And breaking into the text of John chapter 20, the first day of the week comes Mary Magdalene early when it was yet dark. It wasn't at sunrise. It was still dark. And as you read through this scenario in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them, it's still dark. The first day of the week came Mary Magdalene when it was yet dark under the sepulcher and, the, and, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. It was already a done deal. The stone was rolled away. The resurrection had already taken place. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter, to the other disciples whom Jesus loved, and said unto them, They've taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. Now, I think I could make a good case, and probably wouldn't get any argument from you students of God's Word, that no one was more faithful to the Lord and loved the Lord more than Mary Magdalene. You know? The Lord said, you know, those who have much to forgive have much reason to love, you know, when they are forgiven. And she loved the Lord very, very deeply. In fact, her name, Mary Magdalene. Magdala was a province on the shore of, uh, of uh, the Sea of Galilee, up towards the, the Syrian area, that uh, was a, a place of ill repute in, in many respects. And so Mary Magdalene has been tagged as a prostitute because there were prostitutes there. Historically, in ancient times, we know that. But the scripture does not label her that. You know where that designation came from? It came around in the 6th or 7th century, if I remember correctly. A pope decided that Mary was a prostitute. And, and so that now saturates the thinking in the Christian community. But there's no, nothing in scripture to prove that. Nothing whatsoever. But the fact is, Magdala... Her name, Mary Magdalene, if you break it down into its component words, Magdala, it can be interpreted entirely different. Instead of a reference to the city of Magdala, when you break it down in its component parts, it literally means beloved of God. Beloved of God. And certainly, she was beloved of the Lord, and she loved him. And this scenario here is very touching. It's a very emotional scenario. And the fact that he chose to appear to her first, 
You can't overstate how important that is in terms of understanding the affection that they had for each other. Now, it was a chaste, pure, holy affection. My wife was telling me that just the other day where she works, someone ignorantly referenced what they believed to be fact, apparently, that the Lord Jesus and Mary Magdalene had an illicit relationship and produced children and all all that nonsense. Well, that comes from fiction out of somebody's twisted head, you know. But the fact is, Mary was a devoted disciple, as were many women. The women who followed the Lord outnumbered the men. And it was the women who took care of him. There was a retinue, a company of women who followed the Lord and the disciples in their preaching who took care of them, who washed their clothes and provided food for them and took care of them out of their own sustenance, out of their own substance. It was the women who did that. And it was the women who stayed there and did not desert him. You know, the rest of them took off. Peter denied him three times. But the women remained faithful. It was the women who washed his body and took care of him. It was the women. The Lord Jesus liked women, and they obviously liked him very much. Yes, they loved him. They adored him. Yes. And he was the epitome of man. He was, he, they had never seen anyone as masculine as the Lord Jesus, and yet so loving and so tender. Yes. They adored him as did Mary Magdalene. And so she ran to tell the others, verse 3, Peter therefore went forth, and that other disciple, and came to the sepulcher. So they ran both together, and the other disciple outran Peter, and came first to the sepulcher. We understand that, that it must have been John, the younger one. And he stooping down and looking in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, yet went he not in, apparently waited for Simon, Then Simon Peter, following him, and went into the sepulcher, and seeth the linen clothes lie as well. And the implication is unavoidable. The body that had been in those linen clothes just simply was no longer there. And they were. And the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself, which was a clumsy way of referencing the fact that the head was wrapped separately from the rest of the body. That's all that is. Then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Yeah, they saw and believed that he wasn't there. That's what what the understanding is. For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Now, why didn't they know? He had told them repeatedly that he would be crucified and rise again, and yet it did not sink in. How many many sermons have been preached that have not really sunk in? They did not yet have God's Holy Spirit. They didn't receive God's Holy Spirit till the Feast of Firstfruits, Pentecostee. And once they did, of course, then they understood. It all made sense to them. Christ's words and the scripture came alive for them because of that. Verse 10. Then the disciples went away again unto their own home. Imagine that. The Lord is not there and just, well, I just, I'm going home. They really didn't get it. They really did not. We know that Peter went fishing for crying out loud. 
When the Lord was first crucified. Verse 7. But faithful Mary. Verse 11. But Mary stood without at the sepulcher weeping. And the word weeping here in the Greek, I forget the exact pronunciation, but it means profuse tears. It means crying. She, was, she wasn't just sniffing. She was squalling. She was crying, heartbreaking, sobbing, crying. That's what she was doing. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher. So let's try and visualize the whole thing. It's still dark, and she's, she's crying, and she looks into the sepulcher. Maybe something caught her attention. And verse 12, And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head, the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they said unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Why are you crying such, such tears? Why are you crying so much? And she said unto them, can you, hear the, can you hear the pain? Can you hear the emotion? Because they've taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back. And she saw Jesus standing, and knew not that it was Jesus. Again, it was dark. And she, there was emotion. She turned back. We've all done it. Look at me. Look at me. We've all experienced it. That's what happened. That's what we're being told here. That's the description. And something caused her to turn back. And she saw a form there, but she didn't recognize him. In verse 15, Jesus said unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? And she, supposing him to be the gardener, because it was dark, she said unto him, Sir, if you have borne him hence, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Now through her tears, and we've all experienced it, it's sometimes hard to hear when you're squalling and crying and carrying on. This is, this, the implication here is an emotional squalling of tears. Sir, if you have borne him hence, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. In verse 16, the Lord said her name, a name which he would have said in such a way that she knew him. Jesus said unto her, Mary, I have, to, I have to collect my emotions to read the rest of this because it touches me so much. She turned herself and said unto him, Rabboni, which is to say master. And Jesus said unto her, touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my father. So her impulse as soon as she saw him was, master, and she went to, to grab him, to touch him, to embrace him because that was common to them. It would have been as normal for her to embrace her Lord as breathing in and breathing out. Yes. And he said, don't touch me yet, for I'm not yet ascended to my Father. And that's where it takes us to the concept of the the wave sheaf offering. Because shortly after this took place, shortly after this scenario that we just read here, the priest in the temple when the sun was high in the sky, would have gone through the ceremony of the wave offering so that it would be offered to the the Lord and, and His approval be contingent upon the blessing for Israel. 
to be accepted of, of, of God, you see. And that would have taken place shortly after this. And shortly after this, we know something. He said, don't touch me. Let's finish the story. But later on, he was touchable. Clearly implying what? That he had been to heaven. He was indeed the wave sheaf offering. And he was indeed accepted on our behalf. Don't yet touch me, for I am not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things unto her. And we know then that later that same day, the Lord appeared with them. They were able to touch him, to to see his wounds. They were able to literally talk with him and be with him in a very intimate way, clearly telling us that he had been to heaven now. He was now touchable, and they indeed did. And the story of, of Thomas here is very compelling as well. We know that Thomas just simply couldn't believe, and he wasn't present there with the rest of them. And later on, of course, Thomas shows up. And in verse 28, when Thomas, or verse 27 rather, the Lord Jesus said to Thomas, Reach hither your finger, behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it to my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas did. Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. And indeed, the Lord Jesus Christ is Lord. He is kurios. He is owner. He is master. He is the one who has purchased us. He is the Son of God. He is He was and is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our soon-coming King, and He is the unleavened bread that came down for our life. God be with you, brethren.